Well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Echo. I see a few new faces here today. We're glad you came to celebrate Easter with us. Christ is risen. Today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And you know how we do that? We dress in bright colors. We give each other chocolate. The strangest thing we do with Easter, think about this for a second. We welcome a giant anthropomorphic rabbit into our homes at night to lay multicolored eggs. That's, where does that come from? Have we really thought this thing through? There was a, uh, there was a poll on Twitter that said uh, 81% of people believe that the Easter bunny is male. Have we thought this through? He, he, he lays eggs. Anyway, do you know where the Easter bunny comes from? Do you know why the Easter bunny is associated with Easter? It's pagan. Yes, it's pagan, of course. It comes from an old pagan celebration of springtime. So pagans in northern Europe, a long time ago, used to celebrate something called the Oster Festival that commemorated the, the beginning of springtime. And Oster was the goddess of dawn, spring, fertility. And you know what other symbols go really well with these themes? Rabbits, eggs, yes. And as Christianity spread, it was really common for missionaries to sort of take the gospel and work it into what people were already doing in their culture, right? We saw Paul do this masterfully in the New Testament. And I'm I'm picturing this scene here in Northern Europe. Hey, look, y'all have a great idea, the missionaries probably said. New new life, spring, these are great themes. you, You should put the goddess thing away here because Jesus is the only way to new life. Jesus is the only way. Uh, Okay, well, that sounds nice. Can we keep the rabbits? Sure, yeah, yeah. We should have thought harder on that. Because here you have it, and it's still entrenched in our culture today. Came to America in about 1700s, and we still have the Easter Bunny. This is one thing that the missionaries couldn't quite account for, though, is the impact that the Oster Bunny would have on our children. I'm talking about the psychological impact, all right? You might think that, I have news for you, if you think that the Easter Bunny is some kind of jovial, furry little critter, innocent, that's not how I see it. The Easter Bunny is to me an utterly terrifying, bloodthirsty fur demon, and he must be stopped. Exhibit A. So Reed's never, my, my child, six months, seven months old, has never met the Easter Bunny, but this would definitely be her reaction right here. Um, next one. Yes. Do you see this? See, this Easter Bunny's not even that scary, but what I notice in this is the joy that the one sister has and the terror that the other one is going through. Okay, next one. This one is creepy. This is just Creepy. What do you do with that? It, take that off the screen. Okay. And the last one here. The Easter Bunny is literally eating this person's children. Look at that Home Alone face. That's Kevin McAllister. And he's terrified. All right. We should have thought this thing through. Thank you, pagans, for the Christmas tree. Take your Easter Bunny back. Our reading for this Easter Sunday comes from the second chapter in Colossians. Okay, and uh, let's ask God to prepare us to put our minds and our hearts in the, in the right place. Father, thank you 
thanking you for this moment, bringing every single person that's here, bringing, bringing us to this point at Echo Church on this Easter Sunday. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for the worship we had this morning. Look, God, most of us have heard the Easter message before. What we're asking is for your spirit to be present here, for you to move us in a different way. Help this story pierce our hearts and convict us, Lord, that the answer is you, Jesus, and, and it's you and that's all we need. Seal that in our hearts today. Amen. Okay, some background here. Some background. Colossians. Colossae was a city in Asia Minor. And while this is Paul's letter to them, he'd actually probably never been there. He didn't start this church himself. This was sort of a spinoff by a conversion he did in another spot. Epaphras came with some people, set up this church in Colossae. And Paul was writing this letter probably about 30 years after after Jesus had died, okay? And most likely while he was detained in a Roman prison, all right? So, see, the Colossians were struggling with something, some doctrinal issues. They were struggling with something called religious relativism. Some of their believers were trying to mix their past stuff, their pagan and secular philosophies, into foundational Christian doctrine. And, And Paul saw this and heard about it, and he knew that he had to correct these false teachings, all right? Paul's purpose of the letter was was to edify the church, to build up the Colossian Christians, to glorify God always in everything that he wrote. And then also, let's tell them exactly what they need. It's not this other stuff. It's Christ alone. It's Christ alone. That is our message today. So let's read here. Uh, We've got Colossians. Turn to Colossians in the blue Bible in front of you. We're going to start with verse 8 in chapter 2. Give you a second to get there. Okay, chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. All right, Thursday afternoon, I was at my my 9 to 5 job, and I was walking down the hall, and I ran into the GM, the general manager of, of my company, and uh, his name's Bob. He's, he's about six foot four, really, you know, large guy in stature, large presence, uh, super friendly, very funny, very humorous guy. And when, when we crossed paths in the hall, Bob said, hey, David, what's, what's your Easter plans look like? And I said, actually, Bob, my wife and I are really excited. This is our first Easter with our, with our daughter. We're going to go to church. We're going to go back home, do a little Easter brunch. He said, great, cool. He said, where do you go to church? I said, oh, I go to Echo. It's in uh, East Walnut Hills, East McMillan Street. Oh, I'm, I'm familiar with the area. And no joke, he said, is the preacher any good? <laughs> and I said, not really. <laughs> uh, and he said, well, why do you, seriously, he said, why do you go? And I was like, I'm the preacher. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. And uh, we both laughed and, and uh, he asked me, what are you preaching on? I said, Colossians 2. And Bob looked at me and goes, David, I'm Catholic. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and I, I get it. I, I grew up Catholic too. So I gave Bob a, a brief synopsis of what we're talking about. And then the conversation turned. This normal funny guy turned the conversation and said, uh, hey, you know, there's a few close friends that I have that don't believe in anything. Can you believe that, David? I have a few friends who have no faith at all. I just don't see how you go through life like that. Like, it seems impossible to me. And I said, I totally get that, Bob. I totally get that. I knew exactly what it meant because at one point in my life, I was functionally a non-believer. Maybe I didn't 
denounce God? If you would have asked me, I probably would have said, yeah, I believe. Functionally, total non-believer. But the thing about non-believers, I know because I can say, they don't actually not believe in anything. Everyone believes in something. Even the atheist believes in something. And I remember before I knew Jesus, I sort of carried around this existential dread that would pop up every once in a while. If you, if you ascribe to that worldview, there's a voice in the back of your head. Nothing really matters. <laughs> does what you're doing have any meaning? You know, what difference does all this make? You're, you're going to live and you're going to die and that's it. And I, I had this conversation uh, last month with someone I, I really love dearly, somebody very close to me and my family. And she doesn't believe in God. She thinks that probably when we die, there's nothing after that. And, but one thing about her, though, this is the thing I love probably most about her, is she lives a very, a very sustainable lifestyle. She cares so much about preserving and protecting the planet. She's all about making environmentally conscious decisions. And I told her, I think this is a manifestation of your big heart. This is awesome. And I believe that God calls us to protect and preserve the earth. I think this is rooted in Scripture, what, what you do. But when you hear a naturalist say something like, you know, I want to make a difference in the world or I want to leave an impact, for me, that's, that's a red flag that raises here. So I totally believe it's possible to leave an impact and make a difference, but I believe it's possible because the kingdom of God is here and now. You know, I believe that the good things that we do reflect the love of Jesus, and I believe he calls us to love others, to love ourselves, and to love creation. I think it's clearly stated. But you see, if people, if you and me, everybody who's come before and after, if we're just transient beings, right, with no eternal relevance and the planet that we currently inhabit was a product of natural processes and it's going to be gone away with and there's nothing after that. If that is true, my question then is, why does it matter? What difference does it make what we do while we're here? That's my question. Any meaning to me in that worldview is created. It seems fabricated. It seems forced. All right? I've heard it described as this, and maybe a couple of y'all have heard me talk about this, but uh, one way is picture the Titanic. You've all seen the movie. This actually happened. Uh, sinking in the middle of the ocean. There's hundreds of miles. There's no one there to help. But this ship is going down very clearly. There's no chance, there's no hope, all the lifeboats are gone, all right? Say that you're on this sinking ship, the water's freezing, no chance, but you decide to start wiping the dishes and setting the table and putting the forks and the knives in place, all like that. You see, do you see the problem here? It has no relevance beyond this sinking ship, if that's what you think. It's all for naught. A famous French philosopher and novelist, Jean-Paul Sartre, wrote about this exact issue. In, in Sartre's huge struggle with believing that there was no God, he said this, no finite point has any meaning without an infinite reference point. No finite point, me, you, plants, animals, stars, universe, everything that was ever created and will eventually be nothing, no finite point has any meaning without an inf infinite reference point, all right? You see, without God, our infinite reference point, the great I am, who was, who always was, who's here now and who always will be without God, we're void of meaning. And Paul says right here, what we just read, Paul says, that kind of belief has no substance to it. We just read it. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive with hollow philosophy. 
My friends, to think that you and me and everybody else who's ever walked the face of this earth or will, to say that our existence is meaningless is the definition of what Paul is talking about here, hollow philosophy. God created us with a purpose, a real and incredible, a profoundly important purpose. In fact, there's no higher purpose in any created being that God made than what he's written on our hearts as image bearers. We have an incredibly important purpose and meaning, and that is to love God and to glorify him. I'm talking before the fall here, and still, we are called to love God and to glorify him. And how do we do that? Well, sometimes it actually ends up looking a lot like making a difference, like leaving an impact, loving yourself, loving your neighbors, loving and protecting creation. Most of all, loving God. These are our instructions, and they have eternal implications. Paul says it all matters because of Christ, our infinite reference point. That is rock-solid philosophy. And Paul's saying, this other stuff that's going on, that's, those are lies. Don't buy into those. Let's see what else Paul says. Down to, uh, look at verse 9. We're going to go 9 through 12. It's, it's a little bit of a lengthy chunk here. Paul says, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. All right, a little background here. I told you Paul was battling some false teachings in the Colossian church, right? The biggest foe right there in that, in that group of believers was something called Gnosticism. It comes from the root Gnosis, which means to know. The Gnostics had a lot of different things going on, but one major one was they believed there was something called special knowledge. They believed that as Christians, we actually don't have the whole story. There is more to know. I'll give you a few examples here. The, the Gnostics believe that we only have part of the redemption story, that certain angels actually had more information that could be attained. The Gnostics believed that God's personality had many levels and that we only had access to some of them. They also believed that Jesus was fully God. They didn't deny that, but they didn't see the human in him. They didn't believe that he was also made man, all right? Lots of esoteric stuff, lots of mystery, but the thing about the Gnostics, they believed there was more to know. They wanted to acquire more knowledge. And Paul says to this group, that's not true. That's false. He uses the word pleroma. I'm going to put that on the screen. This is your Greek word for Easter. Pleroma, Paul says. And this means fullness. There is nothing more to know. Paul says, you've got it all, total, completion. It's all right here. And Paul says, for in Christ, all the pleroma, all the fullness of the deity, lives in bodily form. If you want to see God, you have access right now. A perfect picture of him, and that's Jesus. Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. And Paul told Colossae, he said the same thing. They're one and the same. Jesus, God, everything that makes God, God, is found in Jesus. The fullness of God, the pleroma, is in Jesus. All that can be known about God, all that we can hope to know, is demonstrated in Jesus, in his life, ministry, death, and resurrection. I was, uh, I was running around my house 
one day after work. It was one of those days where I got home from work and had to be straight somewhere else right after. So it's like I could come home for five minutes, change, get my stuff together, and out the door again. And it was one of those days where I knew I wasn't going to see Amanda and my wife uh, very long, so I tried to have a conversation with her. And I'm getting stuff together, you know, putting on my shoes and where are my keys? They're on this side of the house. And where's my wallet? It's all the way over here. And where are my sunglasses? Well, they're around my neck because, of course, and I'm trying to find all these different things and turn lights off. And then I finally start to walk out the door and I'm, I'm all the way to my car. And then I realize, you know, you do the thing. Where's my phone? <laughs> and where's my phone? So I, I go back in the house, unlock it again, start looking for my phone. And I'm tearing the house apart. You've done this, pulling up the couch cushions and running upstairs and downstairs. Where in the world is my cell phone? I can't leave without that. Like, do people function without? So I'm trying to find my phone. And Amanda knows something's wrong. And she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I just can't find my, oh, wait. Yeah, I got it. I'm okay. I'll see you tonight. Love you. Bye. The fullness that we are searching for that feeling of completeness, we already have it. It is in our grasp. We don't need to tear apart our lives and look all over the place to try to find it. Paul tells us, Jesus tells us, you already got it. It's already there. And Paul says, because you're in Christ, we've been brought to fullness. Because Jesus is the fullness of God the Father. If we want to be all that God wants us to be, if we want to be actualized, if we want to be the best version of ourselves, the pleroma, we should look nowhere else but to Jesus. It's not about finding ourselves or achieving something or someday when I'm a better person, then I'll be, that's not it. It can be found in one place. So look nowhere else. It's Jesus. When When we genuinely surrender our lives to Christ, we become united with him. It's not, that, it's not that Jesus is at arm's length if we need him or we've got to pray and then he'll show up. Jesus dwells in us. That's part of it. Pleroma, fullness. To be incorporated with Jesus means the very relationship he has as part of the triune God, we have the same. In Christ, you've been brought to fullness. This means that the relationship that Christ, the Father, and the Spirit it now becomes a relationship that we have, all right? The way that the Father loves Jesus, that's the way that the Father looks at us, sons and daughters grafted in. The Son's love for the Father, we participate in that in the same way. And then the Spirit dwells in us. This is pleroma, fullness in Christ. We participate, we are caught up in the triune God. We never, we never become God. I'm not saying that at all. We're invited into a beautiful relationship of fullness in him. Play Roma. We lack nothing. We lack nothing. That is the message that Paul brings to the Colossian church. So what we just read, let's look back at verse 11. Verse 11 says, In him you were circumcised, not by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. This is a spiritual application for a physical practice. We won't go into the physical practice too much. This used to be a sign of the covenant God and Abraham. And what Jesus is doing is he's he's taking something away. He is removing our sinful nature. He wipes it away and it's gone. The verse 12, right after that, buried with him in baptism. You were also raised with him through your faith 
in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So get this. Paul is refuting the Gnostics by reminding the Colossians the exact same thing that I'm trying to remind us as a church today on this Easter Sunday. And that is, you are complete in Christ. You are complete in Christ. Baptism is one of the things that symbolizes our union with Christ. Paul says that when you trust in God, when you surrender your life to him, you are united with him. Therefore, when when Christ enters the grave, we do too. Our old self is in the grave. It's buried. Our sinful nature was buried too. When Jesus went down in the tomb, there we were too. That's what's symbolized by going down in the waters of baptism. And then, because we are united in Christ, when Jesus came up out of the grave, we did too. This is not poetry. This is, this is in a very real sense. There we were too. When Jesus was made alive, so were we. But you know what was left down there? Our old self, our sinful nature. That's what salvation is. It's a glorious and beautiful thing. We're given the fullness of Christ. We are made new. And Paul isn't talking about the future. This is not someday, much later, when you feel like you've got your stuff together. Not even when you die, but right, right now. Look at the tense of these verbs. It says, you have been buried. You are risen. This is present stuff. Easter is not merely about judgment day. It certainly has implications. But right now, this is relevant to us. In this very moment, when you and I surrender to Jesus, we become whole. We become whole. We lack nothing. So let's be honest. Let's slow this down and think about the real way that this works out. Sometimes I don't feel resurrected. I don't feel made alive. Aren't there times when you feel kind of dead, like your old self, your sinful nature creeps back in? Maybe it's more days than not. You know, you feel like that. Like your sinful nature is still there. But look, I get that. We gotta, be, we gotta be real with this. None of us feel, I don't feel, united with Christ consistently all the time. But here's the thing. That feeling, as it goes up and down, doesn't change the truth value of what we know, what's written in Scripture, and what we believe. It doesn't change the truth. We gotta always be on our guard not to let our experiences dictate the authority of divine truth. We can't ignore our experience, not saying that, but it's a huge mistake to allow something that ebbs and flows to allow that to mistake what we know to be true. In this fallen world, it can affect that. But we have to decide to cling to it, even through those tough times when we're not feeling it. Because holding on to only the stuff that we're feeling at the moment or only the stuff that we want, that goes back to what Paul was saying. That's hollow philosophy, all right? We can't subscribe to that. Our feelings and our desires, they're going to fluctuate. So we know that we can feel spiritually dead sometimes, maybe a lot of times. But this was true of the Colossians also. This is why Paul brought his message there, even though he never visited. Paul knew that. And we have to remember that it's a process. That's why sometimes in the New Testament, it says that we are being saved. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a process. We don't, might not always feel it. The Colossians had times where they certainly felt empty, maybe more often than not. And that's why the Gnostics could tempt them, all right? Make sure, you, make sure you grab this. Holy Spirit, help us to get this. The Gnostics were peddling something to the Colossian Christians. They had something to sell. 
People are selling us stuff all the time. You walk outside of these doors and everybody's trying to sell you something, whether it's intentional or just voices in the world trying to pull us to things that are hollow and that don't have any real foundation. Paul's trying to tell us, we have all we need. You got it. You're talking on the phone that you're looking for. You've been brought to fullness in Christ. The enemy, the enemy is always lying to us. And one of those lies that has been perpetuated since Genesis is you don't have everything you need. That's a lie that we constantly hear. Do you remember Adam and Eve in the garden? That's fullness with God. They were in communion with him. They had everything. They lacked nothing. Do you remember what the serpent said to them? He said, oh, you can't eat, can't eat from this tree? You can't eat from that tree? Uh, you, know, you know what you're missing? You could, you could gain wisdom. You could be like God. That was the lie. But Jesus tells us, and Paul reminds us, we lack nothing. We lack nothing because our hope and our joy and our peace and our aspirations, they're all met through Jesus. We are actualized, we're our complete selves through Jesus crucified. That is the message of Easter. A lot of things might be true about the way that we look or feel. We, we think about these things, they fluctuate. But the truest thing, the thing that is rock solid and doesn't go away is that we've been, we've been made new. We have fullness in Jesus. Because of the work that, the God has, that God has done through his son, we're united with him. Pleroma, fullness, it's there. That's the truest thing about us. I'd like to finish this part of Paul's letter. So let's look at, let's look at 13 and, and 15, these last three verses, all right? Paul says to the church, when you were dead in your sins, And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross." Paul says, Jesus took all of our dark and our nasty and our shameful and our self-centered, all that stuff, Jesus took it, the stuff that you've done, the stuff that we're about to do when we leave. Jesus took it and he nailed it to the cross. And with that, down in the grave. And when Jesus rose, so did we. And with him in that unity, all that old stuff, all that stuff that's to come that's not our true self, that's gone too. It's been paid for. Let's leave it there. That's what Easter is. One of the craziest things in my mind about this story is think about the way this happened. Uh, in some ways, evil defeated evil. Paul says, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, victorious through the cross. You may have heard this adage in sports, but you know, sometimes the opponent beats us and sometimes we beat ourselves. That's what happened with, with evil. The enemy must have had no idea that by bringing death to Jesus, death would effectively implode on itself. It was impossible to hold Jesus into the grave, all right? Darkness can't put out light. It must have really seemed, though, imagine back in that day, it must have really seemed like death won for a moment. You know, when the crowds left, when they brought his body down, and only his family and friends were still there. And they were mourning his death, preparing for burial. Don't you think it seemed there for a moment that death won? 
But if it appears that evil won, when we start to think this, let's look back at what Isaiah said about 700 years before Jesus was even born. Isaiah said this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we were healed. And when you start to think again that maybe evil won, look at what Jesus said because countless times he told his disciples, the crowds, everyone who would listen, he reminded them why he was here. And we see this, this in Luke. Jesus says for the third major time to his disciples, he said, everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, they'll insult him, they will spit on him. They'll flog him and they'll kill him. On the third day, though, he will rise again. And again, if it ever appears to you that evil may have won, recall what Peter and what Paul said, what all the New Testament writers said, the exact theme of the scripture we're studying today. Remind you, evil didn't win. Jesus was the one who came to conquer evil and set the captives free to pay the ransom for many. That was, that was always God's plan. And as evil began to think itself victorious, death was no match for Jesus. The giver of life, it turns out, could defeat death. And evil was no match for the love we see on the cross. I'd like to invite the worship team uh, back up here as we begin to close. I want to tell you a story that I heard this weekend. Have you heard of a woman named Emma Morano? Does that name sound familiar to anyone? Emma Morano, she died this weekend. She was an Italian woman, and she was formerly, on Friday, Emma was the oldest living person in the world. She was 117. She was born in 1899. <laughs> the last living person from the, from the 1800s died this weekend. Morano was the oldest of her eight siblings. She survived, she out-survived all of them by a couple decades. Her son, of course, went before, before her. On the year of her birth, the bicycle frame was patented. This year, cars drive themselves. <laughs> she went through 90 different Italian governments. Emma Morano. And as they always do with people who live for a long, long time, they try to ask her, what's the secret to your longevity? That's what they always ask, and people say things like Dr. Pepper. <laughs> but Emma Morano actually said, would you believe this on Easter Sunday? Emma said, it's eggs. <laughs> she eats three eggs a day. She has for 90 years. That's a long time, since she was, what, 20, something like that, almost 30. She's been eating eggs, three eggs a day, two of them raw. <laughs> That's pretty gross. But now we're starting to consider it, right? See, 117, and she died this weekend. If you think about all the years we've had, all the technological advances, death is still 100%. You know, no one has beat it. It doesn't matter how long we live, but these bodies, they, they're not preserved through life. Death is is a symptom of the fall. It's, it's evidence of our rebellion, right? The message of Easter is that Jesus has the final word. The only one who could change the course of our fate, Jesus, did that. And by grace, we've been saved. And by grace, we're gonna be restored in bodies that are way better than the decaying ones that we have now. 
Eternal life starts right now. The fullness of God was made there in Jesus. And as he demonstrated the best love we have ever, ever known on the cross, that fullness is imparted to us too. We get to participate in it. Remember this, we have all, we have all that we need. So I'm gonna invite you to stand and we're gonna sing this song with the, with the worship team.